good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm coming to you uh, at the uh, the privilege that has been given me by EWTN, and I greatly appreciate that they would uh, invite us to have this program on EWTN Radio. We're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International near Zanesville, Ohio. Deep in Scripture is a program we've been doing for a number of years that comes from our commitment that this is the inspired, infallible gift from God of the Word that we've received through His Church. And uh, we are called to study the wonderful Word of Scripture in the midst of the faith of the Church, trusting the teacher of the Church, to make sure we don't get offline. We may talk about that a little bit tonight, because you can't get very far from any of the uh, news in uh, television and radio to see that there are well-meaning people who desire to follow God, even desire to follow Scripture to the best that they can understand, but yet end off in trajectories far from others, other Christians who believe the exact same thing. I mean, excuse me, who believe the the exact same thing about Scripture, but interpret the Scripture in radically different ways. And uh, we may talk about that tomo- this in a moment with our guest tonight. That's not our main topic for tonight. What we've been doing for the last couple months is focusing on uh, uh, verses that inspired us to follow Jesus Christ and in the context of our calling, our vocation. How do we use our gifts? How do we make choices in life? Uh, you know, which direction do I go? And our guest for this evening <clears throat> is Paul Abbey. Paul uh, was a Lutheran pastor, served for almost 14 years. He's since founded uh, Spiritus Gladius Ministries, um, and you can find out more about that at his website, Paul Abbey, that's P-A-U-L-A-B-B-E dot net, which he um, himself offers his uh, skills and uh, desires to help others as a conference speaker and a retreat leader. And You'll see by the internet uh, a variety of uh, things about his background. Paul is a good friend. He's been on the Journey Home program. He um, uh, comes from the Lutheran background. Those of you who've been watching the news know that the Lutherans have made some kind of radical decisions lately. So uh, I'm glad that that, uh, Paul was able to join us tonight in the program. He's mourning a bit as he thinks back about some of the struggles that his that our Lutheran brothers and sisters are going through right now because of the decisions of some in their denomination, but we can keep them in our prayers. In asking Paul what verse he would like us to discuss tonight, he chose Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and along with that, Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 is probably the most well-known penitential psalm. In Catholic tradition, often it is recited on Fridays, uh, there are many verses from Psalm 51 that are very familiar. Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. That's from Psalm 51. Um, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love. That's the opening of Psalm 51. There's lots of verses, and maybe the verses that are most familiar to me from my own Lutheran background are right in the middle, part of the Lutheran liturgy, created me a clean heart, O God. There's a section there that we always said right after the, the offering. It was a very high point in Lutheran liturgy, uh, which is still, a, to me, a very important 
verse to me now that uh, I understand the liturgy from my Catholic perspective. But the text that we're going to shape the program around, at least from the beginning, uh, as Paul joins us in a moment, is the Isaiah 6 passage, which is the section of Isaiah in which we hear Isaiah's call on how he discerned that God was trying to reach him, to uh, empower him, to purify him, and then to extend a calling to him to surrender his life for service. And I'll read this passage, but I want to remind you that there's a website associated with our program, deepinscripture.com. If you go to that website, you'll see the text that we're going to study tonight, lots of information about the Coming Home Network International. You can also watch me sitting here looking at the camera because we're broadcasting live on the Internet. Uh, And if you'd like to contact us, we'd love your comments about the program. The phone numbers are 800-664-5110 or 740-450-1175. You can call during the program if you have a question for Paul, and uh, we'll, we'll write down your question and then read it on the air so that Paul or I can address it. Or you can send us an email. We'll address it immediately, and that's Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. Now let's take a moment and listen to Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8 the call of Isaiah. And as we listen, I'd encourage you to think about your own calling. How has God called you? And how do you know? Beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin forgiven. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus when he welcomes former Pentecostal John Giles to the show. Find out what convinced him to leave his faith tradition and make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 7th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. 
This year we will begin On the Rocks, looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grothi, your host here on coming you from the Coming Home Network International. You're hearing us on EWTN. And hello, Paul. Are you there? Yes, Marcus, I am. Paul, thank you for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure always. I'm a little bit under the weather here. I'm, I think I'm catching one of those late summer colds. Those are terrible. I had one of those last week. I think I'm getting over it now, so <laughs> uh, I feel your pain, as they say. I rarely get sick, but I've just, it's just been creeping on just when. You know, life gets complicated. I teach tomorrow night at Franciscan, and then I'm away for a couple of days on a speaking tour. I mean, it's just, uh, just when I'm traveling for four yeah. days, uh, I get sick. So, But anyways, you know, just depend on the Lord. Paul, I mentioned a little bit in the, the beginning, um, you know, about the, the sadness of, that you and I both feel from our, our Lutheran backgrounds. Uh, I don't necessarily want that to be the topic for the night. We both decide we don't want but I just thought it'd be good to, to especially to, to offer a prayer out there for our Lutheran brothers and sisters, the ones that are not happy with the way things are going in their church. I appreciate that, Marcus. And I know of many of my former colleagues who are very faithful, confessional Lutheran pastors and, and who do have a deep respect for the Catholic tradition in the general sense, um, who are just um, absolutely heartbroken by this and, and, and have agonized as they have watched um, this uh, Lutheran denomination, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, which in its uh, predecessor bodies uh, produced some just real theological giants. Um, Richard John Newhouse, before right. he became Catholic, was a member of uh, a clergy person in the Lutheran Church in America. And so there's a great heritage here um, within that tradition which has been um, sadly uh, forsaken. And, uh, and there, are, there are, I know, many uh, faithful pastors who are um, in, in deep, deep distress at this point. And, you know, again, whether we get into this later in our discussion, we can. But I think that the, when we look at, in general, not pointing a finger directly at the decision of, of this denomination, which has basically you know, voted to, uh, I mean, I don't know the whole context, but I think they voted to ordain homosexuals and to, uh, and to uh, bless same-sex uh, unions. Um, but it's... It, it, when you think about the trajectory of a denomination that comes from a founder that was committed to sola scriptura right. and, and standing on the word and yet to see the direction that they've gone, it, it, it's just an illustration of what happens when this, this idea of individual interpretation and sola scriptura are are broken away from a trustworthy authority of the church through which we receive the Bible, right. the intended teacher. Well, and one of the key principles involved, um, you know, you think of, of Luther before uh, the Diet of Worms, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. And so unfortunately it becomes an issue of my conscience and uh, the Word of God. 
which, if your conscience was well-formed, that might be one thing. Mm-hmm. But when the conscience is has not been well-formed, and unfortunately over the past generations, um, I- instead of the gospel being uh, a gospel of transformation, it's become a gospel of affirmation. I must be affirmed, you know, in all that I do. And uh, so consciences which I fear have not been well-formed, have then taken Sola Scriptura as a naked principle, ripping it out of the, even the context of tradition, and, and wetting it to the a warped understanding of the priesthood of all believers, so that every individual uh, on the street with a Bible believes he has the right to his own private interpretation of Scripture. You take that, throw it into the mix of American religion, where we have this misconception that the Church is a democracy, and we can vote on anything we want to vote on, uh, sadly, um, you're, you end up exactly where these folks have ended up. And you talk about a formed conscience. If you think for a moment, you know, Martin Luther, uh, yes, he you know, went too far in his idea of renewal, um, you know, casting out the authority of the church and, and the ordination of priests and the trustworthiness of tradition, and then he kept moving in that direction. But in many other ways, most of his other ways, he remained a Catholic until he died because his conscience had been formed as a young man and in seminary and through his training as a Catholic. It was the second and third and fourth generation Lutherans that had not had that kind of formation that slowly the more obvious Catholic foundations slowly were weaned out Mm -hmm. of the Lutheran church. And again, we're not just pointing a finger at Lutheranism. That's true of every other Christian tradition. Uh, There there is no Christian tradition, any other Christian tradition other than the Catholic faith and the Orthodox faith, that you could say from an issue of faith and morals that they haven't changed what they believe in areas of faith and morals from their founding. 50 years, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they've all moved in a direction in which they essentially conform to the voices of culture around. Right. That doesn't mean that there haven't been Catholics within the Catholic Church pressuring the leadership to get with it. You know, I mean, during the 60s, there was the pressure to, uh, for the Church to, to soften its view on contraception and other issues. But the leadership of the Church says it isn't, we don't have the, the authority or the freedom to change issues of faith and morals. We have only the authority to preserve and to protect and to pass on. Well, we've talked about this before as well, but um, and one of the things I came to understand, even as a Lutheran pastor, uh, while still Lutheran, I had the deepest respect for Catholic moral theology because it became clear that on several issues that were prevalent in the modern culture, uh, contraception and abortion primarily among them, um, where every other Protestant denomination had slowly shifted with the culture. Uh, there was only one liturgical sacramental tradition, if you will, that had remained consistent, and that was the Catholic Church. Um, well, I'll tell you what, let's get down to the verse. We may come back to some of these issues, like we've said. These are the important issues, and we pray for our brothers and sisters who are going through this right now, trying to decide what to do. Uh, yep. and we want that we would pray that they would see the fullness of faith in the, in the Catholic Church. Uh, why did you choose Isaiah 6? Well, your theme for this year is um, 
verses that have encouraged us to follow Jesus. And I, I kind of wanted to, within that topic, point to some verses which describe how I came to follow Jesus, my conversion, and I think not just my conversion, but probably in principle, um, the conversion of a lot of folks, a lot of, of, of our listeners, your listeners. All right, let's, uh, this passage is familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism in it. There's uh, a lot going on there. And in, and in fact, before, as we get into the very yes. beginning of the passage, yes, go ahead. we have to do a little bit of a, of a quick summary history lesson. All right. Because Isaiah begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died. And, and to know a little bit about King Uzziah might be helpful here. Okay, go ahead. Um, king Uzziah had begun uh, as a young king, uh, a very godly <laughs> young man. He, he became king at about the age of 16, and uh, he was faithful to God, had God's favor. God gave him victory over all his enemies around about him. But as he grew older, he became blinded by pride, and his pride led him to a very foolish act. He decided that he was as good as a priest and took it upon himself to enter the temple and to offer incense on the altar of incense. And uh, a priest named Azariah, and this is all in Second Chronicles, we won't go there, but uh, Azariah, the priest with about 80 other courageous priests, rushed in, tried to prevent him from doing this, rebuking him for usurping the honor of the priesthood. But Uzziah, with a center in his hand ready to burn incense, Became, became angry with them and began to rage at them in the presence of the glory of God in the temple. And while he's raging at them, suddenly there appears on his forehead leprosy. And he was a leper from that day until the day he died. And in the opinion of some of the early church fathers, the reason why Isaiah mentions this kind of historical mm-hmm. context is that uh, the thought was that Uzziah's sin had caused a pause in prophetic action, that God had withdrawn his prophetic voice and vision from the kingdom due to Uzziah's sin until he died. So Isaiah mentions the death of Uzziah at the beginning of chapter 6 because God revealing himself again to the people was, in and of itself, pretty momentous. The vision itself was almost beyond description. And again, this is where Isaiah's story and my story and no doubt your story and lots of other stories uh, probably... Uh, are going to find some similarities. Well, he, he certainly begins with a, an experience that few of us could claim, and that is that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And yep. Above him the seraphim and you know, with their, their six wings and and then uh, praising God, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. How do you describe, how do you explain the, those verses? What's going on? Well, this is a a vision Isaiah has of the heavenly temple, if you will, um, and, and there's a there's a, where where all conversions begin mm-hmm. is with a revelation of God. You know, it's always God's first moves first, um, and and our coming to faith is a response to His grace in our life, His revelation of Himself to us. So what we have here is a revelation of God's holiness and power and righteous judgment, if you will a confrontation um, with the glory and grace and light and love of God that brings a moment of clarity, this I saw the Lord moment. Um, St. Paul has his I saw the Lord moment, a very dramatic one, on the road to Damascus. 
a um, couple weeks back. You and Tim Drake were talking about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. Um, they have an I saw the Lord moment. Um, they're not blinded like Paul. They just end up with this case of holy heartburn, as you guys were talking about. <laughs> um, St. Augustine has this I saw the Lord moment. Not quite as dramatic. He's in a garden. He's pondering his life. He's lived a pretty licentious life. And he suddenly hears this child's voice come wafting over the garden wall, singing, Take and read. And he picks up scriptures lying on the table and reads, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that's his, you know, I saw the Lord moment, if you will. It's always a confrontation with God, with the living word in the flesh, or with the Holy Spirit speaking through the word inscribed through scriptures. Uh, it's a confrontation with the holiness the wisdom, the power, the glory, the light and love of God, which brings a sudden clarity, a, a moment of clarity, and the sinner sees himself as he truly is in God's eyes. That's you know, I, I want to uh, interject something here, because uh, you, you've mentioned all these people that sensed that God was uh, coming forward to touch them uh, and to call them. And I think that as I look back in my own life, I can identify the time when that happened in my life. I think you can do that. I think I'm assuming that most priests, uh, ministers, uh, can relate to that. Um, but given what we were talking about earlier, I think that this section um, can have a, a dark side to it because it can imply that anyone sitting around uh, having a beer senses that the Lord calls them to do something and uh, and they respond and of course the danger is how can we be certain that it's God calling and not our own self or or the devil and therefore there's the danger of, of this private interpretation looking at a passage like this being moved by it and, and then, you know, feeling a call to go off and do something when the question is, is God really the one that's calling you to do that? Well, and that's where, as Catholics, we're always going to understand that uh, uh, the scriptures are read within the church. And the Spirit moves, um, gifts individuals as he wills, and calls them, but that that call is always... Um, that subjective internal call is always tested objectively by the church. Um, even as a Lutheran pastor, I didn't just get up one day and decide I want to go preach in a Lutheran pulpit. You know, there was uh, long years of, of academic training and, and theological and spiritual formation, and uh, certain committees you had to meet with over years uh, to come to a point where they were ready to say, yes, we believe that this individual has been called by God to to this office within the church. And when we look back in the history for, since the Reformation, you would say that even though in the first 20 or 30 years of the Reformation there was uh, you know, a radical uh, division amongst the early Reformers who couldn't agree with one another, forming different groups, Menno Simon, Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Bucer, Bollinger, um, you know, the, all these different groups, Farrell, you know, they, they each had different opinions, and so you ended up with a, a variety of different groups 
uh, Lutherans and Reformed and Congregationalists and Anabaptists. And, but in general, the majority of the groups that spread out from the Reformation, as they would respond to the call of Isaiah, they, like you just said, there was still the understanding that there was some kind of checks and balances of authority mm-hmm. that uh, that call needed to be tested. Right. But where I am concerned and really pray for our brother, Christian brothers and sisters out there, that particularly in the last 50 years, there's been a, a large growth in the independent churches that were not there in the early days of the Reformation or up until 150 years ago, there were certainly a percentage, always a percentage of independence. But what we're seeing now, I would say that probably the percentages are showing that the independent pastors and independent churches are growing leaps and bounds compared to the old, more um, uh, denominational type churches. And so we have this danger of individuals being inspired by a passage like this and deciding they're going to go out and start their own church. Well, and you touch on something, and again, we come back to the whole concept of sola scriptura, mm-hmm. the scripture alone. Yes, scripture is authoritative. It is the word of God. It is authoritative, but it is not sufficient. And again, to hark back to part of my journey into the Catholic Church, when I began reading early church fathers, Irenaeus comes to mind. You know, he, he made it very clear that the authority was not in any book, the New Testament not having even been pulled together as canon at that point, um, that the authority was not in a book, but in a person. And the person was the bishop. And oh, by the way, this bishop has to have the pedigree that harks back to one of the, you know, patriarchal fights. Uh, prime among them was Rome. Uh, and, and he says, I don't have enough time to, to walk through the whole lineage of all the different bishops, but suffice it to say, let's walk through the one of the greatest church, the yep. church founded by Peter and Paul, uh, with which all churches must agree. Um, it, that was eye-opening to realize, yes, we have a problem here, and the problem is trying to interpret Scripture apart from the authority of the church. And it's, it, I'll tell you, it's particularly hard for... I know you and my and me when we were brought up Lutherans, we, we were brought up in the perspective of seeing it within this context, and it's it's almost like that you're going over to the theater and you're going to see a movie. Before you walk in, by accident, the guy projecting the movie accidentally slid a green filter in front of the lens, so the movie all looked kind of strange. But you didn't know that, so you walk into the movie and it may look different, but you get used to it, and then you get tired of the movie when you're watching, and so pretty soon you leave. But then after you leave, someone finally corrects the movie. Well, you don't even know mm. that the movie was goofed up because it happened before you came and it got corrected after. As far right. as you knew, it was always this way. Right. In America, we are so in the soup of individualism that a majority of Americans can't even imagine this idea of when, you're, when you come to Christ, you become a part of a body, the church. And you're not just saved individually, you're saved as a part of the body. It involves an individual choice, but you become a part of the body of Christ. And if you decide, like Isaiah, to hear this calling, 
Well, you're a part of the body. It's not just a decision you make for yourself. It's a part of the body. You have authorities above you as well as beside you or even beneath you in your position that help you discern what God has called you to do. Now, we're going to take a break in a moment, Paul, but we got a, 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 received a phone call from George from San Jose, California. Let me read it before the break. When we come back, we'll deal with this. It's a real simple question. It could be handled in just a second. Paul, but I'll let you think about it during the break. George writes, if God is omniscient and omnipotent, how can there be free will? How could God create a person knowing that he was going to send that person to hell? You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grota. I'm joined tonight by Paul Abbey, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus when he welcomes former Pentecostal John Giles to the show. Find out what convinced him to leave his faith tradition and make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 7th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year we will begin on the rock looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined tonight by a good friend, Paul Abbey, and we're looking at Isaiah's call, and also then we'll look a little bit at Psalm 51. But Paul, um, just before the break, I, I, I dropped a nice, just a soft bomb on yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for that That uh, <laughs> real easy uh, low-pitched softball there. George <laughs> asks from San Jose, California, if God is omniscient and omnipotent, how can there be free will? How could God create someone knowing that he would go to hell? Well, the, the answer to that can be long or short. Given we have just a little bit of time tonight, let me <laughs> try to go for the shorter answer. George, um, that God created a free being that could love him freely that free being had to have free will. Uh, he wanted to create us in his image, and as God has a will, he granted us a will, a free will, and then called us to love him and obey him. Obviously, that has to allow for the option that someone will choose by that free will not to love him or obey him. And as a result of that choice, um, of rejecting God, uh, suffer the consequences of that. That um, yeah. Let me may not let answer me, all of the questions. Oh yeah, it's, this is a rough one. Let me let me uh, just throw a comment in there. To first of all, George, thanks for your question. It's it's this is a question, of course, that uh, the philosophers have, theologians have battled back and forth with for two thousand years, um, and I will say, go to the Catechism, which is dealt with very collectively 
concisely, but there's two issues that I'd like to comment on in this, Paul, uh, just to add to that, because I want to make sure you have your time for what you want to talk about. Number one, of course, the, the problems that any human being has in trying to answer a question like this um, is that we are limited to see God through our human eyes. Like, for example, we want to understand how God loves. Well, the only thing we know is human love from experiential perspective. And so we can, we can uh, uh, describe how we understand God's love, his mercy, how does God feel, how he cares, uh, how he yearns for us. Again, we're limited by human vocabulary. So we try and understand an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. I can tell you right now, that is so beyond our ability to comprehend that even to make, to try then to go into logical issues like the one presented here, we have to begin by recognizing uh, our shortcomings. I, one of the papers I did in seminary, based actually on my Lutheran and Calvinist backgrounds, my, my thesis was on if God has predestined all things since the beginning of time, then why pray? Uh, you know, it seems to put ourselves in a conundrum. And, and that brings me to my second point, which is, and Paul, I wonder if you experienced the same, and this is one of the reasons why I love the Catholic heritage and the way the Catholic Church and philosophers and theologians have dealt with issues like that, is that Catholics have always been more comfortable with the mystery of the both and, whereas yep. Protestants always push everything to the either or. Luther did this, Calvin yep. did this, especially the Calvinists, who this sounds like a Calvinist to me, God is sovereignty, and so sovereignty takes the, uh, you know, is the trump card over everything else, and so it's either God's sovereignty or man's freedom, and so you have the Calvinists on one side and the Methodist um, Armenians on the other side, whereas Catholics recognize in the great mystery of things, God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, yet he cares individually for me. Now that in itself, how could that be? With all the people living or have lived, how could an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God yet care for me? That in itself is beyond our ability to understand, each one of us, but he does. And yet even on top of that, he has so loved us that he gives us the freedom. We're not puppets, we have the freedom to respond to him. How is that possible? I don't know. Does God predestine somebody from the beginning of the world to go to hell? We don't push it that far. We would not say that because God has said that all things are possible with God, that the only sin that is unforgivable is a, is a rejection of God, and if we can turn and repent, Scripture says that, then there must somehow be room in the mystery of God to allow the both and. You make a good point there, Marcus, and I'm glad you put it that way. That was one of the things I, I also came to realize as I was coming into the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church is much more comfortable with the concept of mystery. Yeah. And, and often where a Protestant approach to a theological issue would be, it's either or. In the Catholic Church, it was, you know, the answer was yes both ends. Um, I had someone explain it to me, and this applies to a lot of different theological issues. Um, you have uh, the old tent pole that you put up, 
and in order to keep that tent pole straight up at a 90-degree angle to the ground, you've got guy wires on each side, that you stakes that you stake into the ground with wires. The tension on both of those wires has to be equal, or that pole's not going to stand straight up. Same thing with theology. Um, Jesus Christ is true man. Jesus Christ is true God. Those are both equal, and they have to be held in equal tension in order for the theology to be straight. You pull too much on one side or the other, you're in heresy. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, that was the the questions early on in the church. That's why Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, was called to deal with the divinity of Jesus Christ, to deal with how do we understand that he's both divine and human. If God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, then how could Jesus the man be God? And if you're going to push an either or, you're going to end up an Arian or an adoptionist right. or one of these early heresies. But in the beginning, the church says it's a both and. He is 100% God and 100% man. And even as a man, he had freedoms that we would not expect an omnipotent, you know, uh, a, a, a God who knew everything from beginning to end, yet Jesus said that only the Father knows. How is that possible? There's a mystery there. And we are called to, that's part of our humility, is to accept that humility and be awed at a God that can do that. Now that may sound like we're uh, uh, you know, running around in circles, but, but it's, there are some issues which we take by faith that have been revealed through through sacred tradition and sacred scripture. But again, George, thank you for that. You know, that's maybe just we're just touching the surface. Go to the catechism, some good stuff in there. What else in the Isaiah six passage would you like to jump on? I know we, we spent a well, little bit on questions and other issues. I'm gonna say that um, again one of the reasons I wanted to pick this passage is because it um, reflected in some ways, in a lot of ways, uh, my conversion mm -hmm. um, We've talked about our, our common Lutheran backgrounds in the past. Yep. Um, I was raised in a, a very solid Christian home, a very small town in Iowa, uh, back in the day when being Lutheran meant, you know, living under the authority of Scripture as the Word of God, um, and uh, those hefty confirmation classes and all those kind of things. Anyway, we were Lutheran. My brothers and I were very active in the church as we were growing up. But a lack of provision for spiritual direction, a lack of intentional mentoring by an older disciple, in how to walk as a disciple, allowed all the doctrine I was taught in confirmation to remain just so much head knowledge. Yeah. I knew all about the Christian faith, believed it in my head, but it never really became something that shaped my life. Hey, been there, done that with the mm -hmm. shorter catechism. <laughs> as a result, after high school, I went off to college and, frankly, wasted two years getting wasted. Um, it was the drug overdose of a friend during the spring of my sophomore year that brought me to a serious and definitely sober um, examination of my life. Several nights after my friend's overdose, I'm walking down a deserted side street near campus, taking a serious, in-depth look at myself. Why was there this deep flaw in my character that drove me to self-destructive choices and seemed to gladly encourage and participate in the self-destructive choices of others? Um, and as a sophomore in college, I'd had just enough psychology to be dangerous. So I'm, I'm playing the connect of the dysfunctions and seeing how the flaws in my character can be traced back to my parents. It's like, hmm, okay, see, I have this flaw in my character because of the way I was raised, because my parents had this flaw in their characters 
No, no, wait a minute. Those character flaws were passed down from their parents who inherited them from their parents. And Marcus, in a flash, it was as if I'd been transported back in time to the Garden of Eden <laughs> and our first parents. And to something I'd been taught back in Sunday school when I was just so tall, original sin. Yep. It was true. I could prove original sin from my own life. I realized in that moment, in that flash, and if original sin was true, and then suddenly it was the confrontation. This blinding, bright magnesium flare went off in my head, and the word, oh my God, escaped my lips, and before the word God was out, I knew that this was not just an exclamation, but an identification, that God was exactly who I was dealing with, who I was standing before. A sudden confrontation with Almighty God, and I was brought to a soul-shaking moment of clarity, and in that moment, I knew two things beyond a shadow of a doubt. There is a God who is holy and who knows who I am, and I am not holy. And uh, this confrontation and clarity was similar, I believe, to that which Isaiah experienced. That's right, yeah. And which I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, can experience. And we can, probably a lot of folks can point to a moment where they've had that um, I saw the Lord moment in their life. Well, if we if maybe take out of the equation when we think about Isaiah as this great prophet, um, put in more the context of that he experiences the reality of God as you just described. Mm-hmm. And he knows in his heart of hearts his conscience has been touched like Isaiah's lips were touched with that coal. Through baptism we are we are made free. You know, the, the, the old is gone, the new has come. And by faith we follow. And then Isaiah sensed inside that God needed a witness who will go for me. And isn't there a sense that, I mean, setting aside for a moment the call to priesthood or the call right. to the diaconate or the call to be a great prophet and all of that, isn't there a sense the that every single person is, in fact, when called by God, to be this same voice? Right. Um, this is, you know, I'm, I'm seeing in this, you know, the call to conversion mm-hmm. that that is going to be something that most folks, I think, will experience in some way or another. And, and what happens is, after the, the conviction or the confrontation with the holiness and, and awesome glory of God that brings this moment of clarity, it results in a, in a conviction, an internal conviction of sin and a confession of sin. Because the next thing Isaiah says, after he describes this vision of God high and lifted up and the seraphim flying and crying out, holy, 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 his, his first words are, woe is me, for I am lost. Um, uh, here's one of the places where I like New American Standard. I usually prefer RSV, but New American Standard here is good. It says, he says, I am doomed. Yeah. Um, I'm a dead man where I stand. Lightning is going to strike me dead so fast, I won't even hear the thunder. You know, that's, that's the moment he's in. He's convinced, I- I'm a dead man right here. Because he stood before the Holy One of Israel and knew, again, God is holy and I'm not. And he goes on to say that, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And, and he doesn't mean, when he talks about unclean lips, 
he's not just referring to his lips, but to his heart and mind. You know, Jesus would say later on in the New Testament, it's what comes out of the, the mouth of a man that defiles him. You know, the unclean lips, he's, he's also saying, my heart is unclean. He doesn't need just clean lips, but a clean heart. And this, I think, is kind of where we can jump to Psalm 51. Mm-hmm. And again, the, growing up in a Lutheran background, you sang verses from this psalm probably every Sunday. Every Create in Sunday. me a clean heart, O God, yeah. and renew a right spirit within me. Um, a great psalm of confession. And we can, we can look at Psalm 51 and <laughs> see exactly what it means to confess sin to God. David you know, has been confronted with uh, his sin with Bathsheba and his arranged murder of Uriah the Hittite. And he's tried to cover it up and, and thinks he's gotten away with it. And Nathan comes in, the prophet Nathan comes in, and by means of a parable, basically, you know, brings David to see his guilt. He says a man, you know, a rich man, took a poor man's lamb and used it to feed his, his guests with. You know, the poor man only had one lamb, and this little guy had a whole flock. And David, the shepherd at heart, you know, he's just irate. He's enraged. He goes, this man deserves to die. And Nathan then points his finger right in David's face and says, you are the man. And, and then we get Psalm 51. This is David brokenhearted, um, confessing his sin to God and, and crying out that God would be merciful to him. And we, and we see all these, all these great kind of symbols here. He talks about um, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And you have to, here again, you have to go back, understand what's hyssop all about. What's that, what's that tied to? What's that bring to mind? You know, the, 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 uh, sadly, uh, Paul, because of time, I want to make sure that we we uh, address our audience on a couple of things because this is a. Uh, I'm have to have you back because we got talking on other issues. But you know, the verse of the Psalm 51 that always has affected me. We talk about conversion, and they're being he's being cleaned with you know using the hyssop branch as the as the conveyor of the blessings and and all of that is the realization that he expresses in verse four when he realizes that his sin is against God. And that may seem so obvious to us, but in that expression that, you know, we think about we sinned and and we say we're sorry to someone in our life that we see and we affected their life. And of course, then it affected our life and we feel guilty and we feel bad about it. Or maybe we don't, right? And we deal with that. But at the core of it, the conversion, like in the Isaiah 6 passage, is when, you know, the, the sin has so awakened someone's conscience that they realize that that little that little lie, or that you know that little theft, or the the little things, that they are against the the pureness of the Father, and that is an awakening to David. Though it took uh, uh, his friend uh, to hit him with a two by four to wake him right. up to that. Right. Uh, he thought that if he could hide the 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 murder of of the husband of Bathsheba, then no one would know. Right. Right? He'd get away with it. But God knows. God knows. Well, and he, and he says, my sin is ever before me. I mean, I have no doubt David went to bed every night haunted by this thing 
and yet during the day he was, you know, putting on the face and, and trying to walk around like it. It's all good, and I got everything covered. Um, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Again, he understands, and this is one of the passages the church points to when it comes to the teaching of original sin. Yeah. David himself, I was brought forth in, in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, but he does go on to say, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. And hyssop was that branch that they dipped into the basin that had the, the blood of the Passover lamb, and that they then marked the doorpost. Uh, the lintel above and the, the door, two side posts, you know, you make that action with your hand, it looks like the sign of the cross, I'm sure just coincidentally. <laughs> um, and so he's basically saying, you know, cleanse me with the blood of the Passover lamb. Wash me with the blood of the lamb, um, which obviously points to the cross. Um, but he's begging God, uh, make me here join gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Clean, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Um, and this is, in essence, what Isaiah is, is asking for. You know, he's, he knows he's a man of unclean lips because he's got an unclean heart. And, and so what does God do? God, in his grace, sends the angel, uh, the seraphim, in his hand a burning coal taken from the altar of incense with tongs, and he touches that to Isaiah's lips. What was interesting was, I was reading in one of the early church fathers, they talked about the coal being a lump of wood that also is filled with fire. And they kind of see that as a type of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the burning away, the purifying of sin that takes place there. Paul, we're going to take a, one last break. When we come back, uh, in the moments we have left, what I'd love you to do is reflect on uh, is how both in Isaiah 6 as well as in Psalm 51, when it talks about conversion, you see the both and in this. In other words, there's the part that God does, and there's the part that we must do. Conversion is something that involves a both and. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that when we get back from the okay. book. You're listening to The Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined tonight by Paul Abbey, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Mother Angelica Live Classics. We live in a world where selfishness and pride reign supreme in the hearts of many, but this is not the way of the Lord. Join Mother as she talks about pride, charity, and justice. That's on the next Mother Angelica Live Classics, only on EWTN. Mother Angelica Live Classics is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110.
Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined tonight by Paul Abbey. We're looking at Psalm, Psalm 51 and Isaiah 6. Paul, both in Isaiah 6 and Psalm 51, we see the both and. We see, for example, in Isaiah 6, the, the call, the, you know, the very active call of God through his angels to change Isaiah's life. Yet in the end, he had the freedom to choose. And same thing with David in Psalm 51. Talk about that in terms of the, the, well, when it, the when both-handed conversion. conversion I, I th- you are right there. And I think there's a point at which God, by his grace, can bring someone to that turning point where they, they know he is God, they know he is holy, they know he is calling them to turn from sin to himself, and they are convicted of their sin. And I think it's at that point where the, the individual can determine, uh, I, I know that to, to turn from this would mean having to confess that this is sin and, and turn my, you know, allow God to turn my life around, if you will. Uh, and maybe it's that, at that point where the individual free will makes the choice. Do I, um, having been confronted by the holiness of God and having had this moment of clarity, do I fall to my knees and confess my, you know, my sin, having been convicted of it, do I confess my sin and, and ask for the cleansing, or do I not? Because somewhat like St. Augustine, he kept asking that God would, would make him holy, but not quite yet. You know, <laughs> and, and so we kind That's of right. put that off. Well, this, uh, 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 you know, this, this calling, and I, I really want to encourage our audience to, uh, to listen to God in your life and recognize that the most common phrase or word used for conversion in the Old Testament is the word turn. And at every moment, God is beckoning us to turn in his direction, but he gives us the grace to do that. But we still have the freedom to do it. It's not, we're not puppets, but yet we're never alone. And uh, Paul, I'm sorry we've, we've kind of run out of time. I feel like I've talked too much. I'm, I apologize for that. But well, thanks for joining come, us. Come on and join you again some other time. Oh, let's do it soon. And uh, maybe we'll pick up on the same passages. And maybe we can reflect even as we watch our brothers and sisters out there that are struggling to discern God's call in their life that uh, maybe we continue to discuss how our, especially our Luther brothers and sisters are dealing with this. Paul, thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to be with you and all of you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. If, uh, if you've liked what we've said tonight, I would encourage you to go to Romans 8.28 because in that it talks about God's love for you. God bless you. See you next week.